Well, on Sunday, we were in Acts 14 together. We're not there tonight. We're in the book of Galatians. You might wonder, what has Galatians to do with this spot in Acts, which we've been in in recent weeks? Well, remember, on Sunday, we left off with Paul and Barnabas traveling through the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then circling back among the same cities, plus Pisidian Antioch, in order to strengthen these churches. In fact, let me read it. Acts 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, into Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And then, verse 23, they appointed elders in every church and committed them to the Lord. Now here's a, a map from the ESV Study Bible if you want to take a look at what's going on there geographically. This one has some details that um, are, are more than what we need for something like tonight, but that will remind you of where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have gone. They've left Antioch in the northeast corner of the map and gone to Cyprus and then up through Perga into Antioch, a different Antioch, the one in Pisidia, and then what we've seen in the last week or two, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then the dotted line showing them circling back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in this strengthening endeavor, encouraging these churches to continue in the faith that they've, that they've heard. That's where we've been. Now, it's hard to overestimate. It's hard to fully appreciate how important it is when we read in Acts 14 that, that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening these churches and encouraging them to continue in the faith or in the grace that they had already received. These cities, as you can see on the map, are in the province of Galatia. You see that big, bold all caps Galatia there. That's a province in which these cities of Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe are found. These are the cities to which Paul was writing when he wrote the book of Galatians. Now, not all scholars agree with that. There's one theory called the Northern Galatian Theory. This is what I'm describing to you called the Southern Galatian Theory. I'm pretty darn convinced of it. Uh, and I think some of the best scholars would argue for it. And so I'll just pretend like there isn't this other theory out there from here on out. Uh, so I think Paul writes the book of Galatians, this letter we call Galatians, uh, to these churches sometime between Acts 14 and Acts 15. So again, keep this in mind. We just finished last Sunday hearing that Paul and Barnabas we're circling back among these city churches, strengthening them and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then apparently once they got back to Antioch in the east, the northeast, the, the ascending church in Antioch, sometime after that, Paul got word that these city churches of Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe had begun to, to go astray. And so Paul writes a code red, four-alarm fire 
kind of warning. He, he writes out of urgent concern because those who had heard and received the gospel that he gave them apparently now had been infiltrated by false teachers who wanted to add to that gospel and create essentially a new gospel, a false gospel. And Paul writes to correct that and, 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 and to confront this and to really save these churches from their wandering. That's the language at the end of the book of James, to save someone from their wandering. While well, the Galatian Christians were beginning to wander from the faith. Remember some background that might be helpful here. Uh, you can imagine that these Galatian Christians are Gentiles. And you might remember from our study of the book of Acts that this Jew-Gentile divide in this law and grace tension had been a real hurdle for some Jews as this era of Christianity dawned. Remember Peter's struggle with that vision he was given to eat the unclean foods? He said, not so, Lord, never. I would never do that. Remember God telling him not only to eat the food, but what it meant. It meant that God was now welcoming Gentiles by grace through Jesus, no holds barred, with no extra requirements or prerequisites as he had before. Remember, Peter finally got it, and he spent some time in the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. But remember, it, was, it needed some explaining when he got back to Jerusalem, and they had heard that he had been in the house of a Gentile, living with them and eating with them. And Peter explained. And they, they got over the hurdle. They, they, it was undeniable what God was up to. That God was undeniably indiscriminate now with Gentiles who would come to God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. By the end of Acts 10 and 11, it seems as though this is a done deal. This is settled. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. They just come right in. But it wasn't settled, apparently. It was settled in Acts 11, at least for those who were there and those who were recorded in the story. But Acts 15 is proof that it wasn't settled. We'll see that on Sunday. And the whole book of Galatians is proof that it wasn't settled. Here's what we can piece together from the book of Galatians. After Paul and Barnabas left this region, some other Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came up to these cities with a twofold message. Number one, that Gentiles can be saved as long as they act Jewish with circumcision and food laws and Sabbaths. And number two, they said, Paul, therefore, can't be trusted because he only gave you half a gospel. He didn't give you all the way of salvation. And so with a broken heart and even a measure of outrage, Paul picks up his pen and writes Galatians. We'll look at Galatians 1 tonight. Turn there with me in your Bibles if you haven't already. We'll look at Galatians 1 as a complement to our study of the book of Acts. Let's read chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if someone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. I think Paul seeks to bring clarity to the gospel in four ways in this chapter. Number one, with the statement of the gospel in verses 3 to 5. He begins with the statement of the gospel in a salutation of sorts. Now Paul will very shortly get to the problem he's writing about, the concern that he has. He'll begin rebuking and clarifying and reteaching But first, as part of a greeting, he makes sure the gospel is clear and established, and this will be the ground from which everything else he writes comes out of. He states the gospel in a salutation so that it provides a contrast to where and how this church has gone astray. Let's just take it a phrase at a time in verses 3 to 5. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here's the source of grace and the result of peace. It comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's that. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with your good works or your bad works. Grace and peace come from God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How has it come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. That's a succinct summary of the gospel. He gave himself for our sins. So often in the Bible, that little word for is used as a real shorthand way of describing what we call in theological terms substitution. That Christ's death was a substitution. It paid for sins. He was in our place. He took our punishment and gives our righteousness. He gave himself for our sins. That's how our sins gets taken care of. That's how we're accepted in God. That's how, verse 4, part B, we're delivered from this present evil age. That's how we're delivered from the consequences of sin and also the power of sin. This was all according to the will of our God and Father. This was his plan. This was his doing. And we are the glad recipients of it. So to him, verse 5, be the glory forever and ever. To him goes all glory. Not 99% of it goes to him and 1% goes, goes to us. But it all goes to him because it's all of him. It's all of grace. Here's the statement of the gospel. Verses 3 to 5. Then, secondly, there's what we might call the singularity of the gospel. Verses 6 through 10. At verse 6, notice the, chain, the tone changes abruptly. It went from, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Grace from Jesus. Peace from God our Father. Verse 6, I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. There's a so-called gospel that you've turned to. Now, no other Pauline letter is quite like this at this point. All the other Pauline letters begin with a salutation that talks about the grace of God. But then they all move to a paragraph on thankfulness and encouragement about this church. Even the infamous Corinthians get this in their letters. A statement of the gospel in, by way of greeting leading to an encouragement. A word of thankfulness. But in Galatians and in Galatians alone... Paul greets them with the gospel, states it up front, yes, but then immediately moves to rebuke because this is that serious. Things are this dire. This is more dire. The situation of deserting the gospel is more dire than a church messing up the Lord's Supper and sleeping around and, and, and having an unbiblical approach to divorce or taking Christians to court like you find in the Corinthian letters. So Paul is astonished by what they've done and astonished that they've deserted it so quickly. 
And he states that to desert, to desert the gospel is to desert him, that is Jesus, not Paul. They had deserted Jesus. The one, he says, who called you in his grace, he had turned to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul addresses head on in verses 6 and 7 what was going on. He says there have been some that come to town who had troubled you. They had come to distort the gospel of Christ with their additions. Again, those Judaic additions of circumcision and food laws and Sabbaths demanding that Gentiles keep these if they will be Christians. And for them to embrace that distortion of the, the gospel with these additions is to lose the gospel in toto. Here's how John Stott describes what these false teachers had wrongly taught. He says, They did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stressed that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun, or rather, what you yourself must finish by your obedience to the law. You must add your works to the works of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. In all of this, Paul is arguing for the singularity of the gospel. There's only one gospel, and there's no adding to it. When you add to it, it's a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. It doesn't matter the credentials of the teacher. It doesn't matter who says it. The gospel is what it is, not what any man says that it is. Even Paul, he is a legitimate messenger, but Paul says, don't trust me that this thing is true. He says, even if I, verse 8, were to speak to you a false gospel, even if my team of apostolic representatives, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, even if he came to you and spoke a false gospel, then you condemn him to hell. You say, anathema, condemned accursed he ratchets it up verse 9 even if an angel from heaven comes down proclaiming a different gospel than the one you first believed well that's no gospel at all into hell with that angel he's imagining the unimaginable an angel coming down from heaven with a different gospel I mean, it's a perfect thought experiment, isn't it? If an angel came down from heaven with a different gospel, would it be a legitimate gospel? Well, he says, no. No. It's not the gospel because of the messenger, even if it's the best and highest messenger of them all. God's grace isn't grace because it comes through a certain messenger. God uses messengers, don't misunderstand, but Jesus alone saves. 
do not get distracted by the messenger. So there's a singularity about the gospel. That the gospel, it doesn't mingle works and it doesn't depend on messengers, not finally. What then is the source of the gospel? Where does it come from? What's the source? So thirdly, the source of the gospel is what Paul unpacks in verses 11 to 22. He starts with what it's not. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It didn't originate from any man. Not Paul, not the Jerusalem elders, not those who have been coming to town representing what they thought was the truth and Moses and the like. No, it's not man's gospel. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that man would come up with. It's not something that human beings would, would invent. It's not natural to our way of thinking that it is totally outside of you and totally up to God to save you. That it's totally Jesus and not you. Like, it's, like Martin Luther was asked once during the, the Reformation, are you saying we contribute nothing, someone said, to our salvation? And he said, we contribute our sin. Jesus contributes the rest. We contribute our sin. That's counterintuitive. It's not man's gospel. You wouldn't have thought of it. And Paul didn't think of it. Paul gets autobiographical in verse 12 and following. How did he get the gospel? He got it from Jesus directly. Now, Paul's not saying that's the only way to get the gospel. Of course, Paul had given them the gospel. And, of course, the Bible says that every Christian is to be a messenger for the gospel. But Paul can point to the truthfulness of the gospel and the purity of the gospel he told them because he didn't get it from any man. He got it from Jesus directly. Even after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, you see verse 16, he didn't consult with anyone about what the gospel was. Verse 17, he didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him, but he went out into Arabia. In fact, it was after three years that he went up to Jerusalem. Now, pause here. If you're following along carefully in our study of the book of Acts, you might remember that Acts chapter 9 gives us some timeline and geography with Paul after his conversion. And it doesn't quite match up with what we see in Galatians 1. We don't have time tonight to get into what, where there could be differences. The short of it is that Galatians 1 inserts a, a three-year, not inserts, it, it contains a, a three-year period that isn't in Acts 9. So in Acts 9, you're reading along, and, and Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, and then is told to go into Damascus and wait there, and then eventually he's no longer blind, and then he goes about preaching, and it seems like not very long after he's in Jerusalem. Well, apparently there was a three-year gap, according to Galatians 1. Galatians 1 has more details. But those details aside, let's not get bogged down in the details of timing or geography. 
Paul's main point here in Galatians 1 in this section is that he didn't get his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. He wasn't even around the Jerusalem apostles. He didn't consult with them about the gospel he received, and he didn't need their approval because he got it directly from Jesus. And yet his change was undeniable. Even without the apostles in Jerusalem observing Paul from themselves, they had heard of this change. The famous persecutor had become a famous preacher of the gospel. So verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy, and so they glorified God because of me. Which leads, lastly, to the sufficiency of the gospel. Really, the sufficiency of the gospel is something that Paul's been unpacking since verse 13. It's what we might call his testimony. It's his conversion experience. And it's a window into how God saves. Let's read it again. Verse 13. You have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him. That change was famous and obvious. The conclusion was unavoidable. He who used to persecute the church is now the one who is preaching the faith. And you must glorify God for that. This is how God saves. He saves the unlikely, the seemingly impossible, he saves the chief of sinners when they're going the wrong way. This is the gospel. This is what it does. It's not man's gospel, and Paul was not the result of any man's thinking. Only the gospel of God's grace in Christ. Grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone. Only that can save and only that can change and only that can offer hope in this life and the next. Later on in Galatians, Paul will make clear what the gospel is and isn't many different ways. Look at Galatians 2, verse 16. This is so helpful. He says, We know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see what he's contrasting? What he preached to these Galatians as opposed to what others had come in and preached to them. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ redeemed us then from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what the Galatians had veered from. This is what Christians still today must cling to and keep on believing and encouraging each other with. Remember, Paul left these Christians in that Galatian province with the word, continue in the faith. And he was astonished that they so easily turned astray. It wasn't in yet. The the report card wasn't in yet on whether this was a turning astray for good, proving that it never was real, or whether it was a temporary turning astray that this letter fixed and by God's grace brought them back into safety. But we can see the warning and the encouragement to continue in the faith, continue in the grace, and the importance and the need for teaching it and encouraging each other with it constantly. We can see the ease by which we go astray. We can see, I think, the ease by which we can trust in works. You see, it's not just a Galatian problem. Or I guess we should say there's a little bit of Galatia in every Christian. Martin Luther, in his preface to Galatians, said this, Human beings by nature, when they get near death, they will of necessity examine their own worthiness. We defend ourselves by recounting our good deeds and moral efforts. But then the remembrance of sins and flaws inevitably comes to mind. And this tears us apart. We think, how many errors and sins and wrongs I have done. Please, God, let me live so I can fix and amend them. We become obsessed with our righteousness and are terrified by imperfections. But the real evil is that we trust our own power to be righteous and will not lift up our eyes to see what Christ has done for us. So the troubled conscience, says Luther, has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace offered free of charge in Jesus Christ. This is true Christian righteousness. He says, if I tried to fulfill the law myself, I could not trust in what I had accomplished. Neither could it stand up to the judgment of God. So I rest only upon the righteousness of Christ, which I do not produce, but receive God the Father freely giving it to us through Jesus Christ. Christian, I ask you tonight, what are you tempted to add to Christ and to his perfect righteousness? What are you tempted to trust in besides Christ? And the cross and his righteousness for you as a gift by grace. I mean, for you is right standing with God, Jesus, plus pretty good Bible reading. Jesus, plus consistent prayer. 
Jesus plus your giving. Jesus plus pretty good with no cussing. What is it? Let me ask you this. When do you feel loved by God? When you're doing pretty good? Could it be then that you are trusting in yourself? We all are. Again, we all have a little bit of Galatia in us all. The problem is when it overtakes us and when it becomes deadly and when it becomes actually what we come to believe and confess and say out loud. May it never be. And yet may it not be something we just know not to say. More than that, may it be something we're continually fighting against and seeing less of. Martin Luther said that everyone, including Christians, are hopelessly meritorious. It means we're constantly trusting in or tempted to trust in our merit, our good works, what we've done. What are you trusting in tonight besides Christ? And do you realize that trusting in that, oh, it's a cheap sham compared to Christ's righteousness. You know, the Catholic Church says that God will not declare righteous what is not actually somewhat righteous. The Protestant Church, however, says God would not declare righteous what is not actually fully, completely righteous. And we never will be, but Christ was. And so God declares us righteous on account of Christ's perfect righteousness and that alone. Not Christ's righteousness plus my scraps. The Roman Catholic Church says God won't declare you rich unless you actually got some money in your pockets. You don't have to have that much. Christ will fill up the rest. But you got to have some in there, by golly. And we say, I got nothing. I got lint. I got dung in here. Someone put vomit in my pockets. I have nothing to hold out to Christ and to say, here, look at this, take this. But I'm not trusting in any of that. Christ paid for all that. Jesus is my righteousness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we sing in our hymns, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. D.A. Carson gives an illustration about some of these things that helps us test where our assurance lies or where it's lacking. I've used it before, but it's been probably five or six years, so we're probably due to mention this again. D.A. Carson imagines two guys, two Jewish guys, on the night of the first Passover. Remember, God had told his people to put blood on the doorposts of each house, and then the angel of death would pass over those houses who had put the sign of faith on their doorposts. Blood applied to the doorposts. So two guys, the night before, they've applied their blood on the doorposts, and they're talking, and one is nervous. One says, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I love my son. I, I don't want him taken. And I, 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 I just, I, I worry that the angel of death will come and get us too. And his neighbor says to him, well, didn't you apply the blood? 
well, yeah, I did, but I mean, I don't know that we're good enough, and, and I really love my son. I don't want the Lord to take him away, and we probably deserve it anyway. I sure haven't been perfect here in Egypt. And the other says, but didn't you apply the blood? And that night, the angel of death came through Egypt. And which of those houses lost their son? Neither. Neither. Carson says, because it is not the intensity of our faith that saves, nor is it the consistency of our faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. And our object isn't just blood on a doorpost. Our object is the very blood of Christ. And he said from that cross, it is finished. And he died. And he died in our place. And righteousness he gives if we simply believe.